Film, and thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we will do our best to answer them. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research, best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, a frequent contributor to media. I now watch him on Bloomberg, CNBC, and latest on Fox Business talking about uh, stock market and where it's going. Apparently, he's the most accurate analyst on these media <laughs> outlets. He's uh, also, in my humble opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter, at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, I'm here with my awesome co-host, Vala Ashtar. Uh, he's not only a world-renowned speaker, he's met the Pope, he's gone out and spoken to 400 CEOs at a Harvard club recently, and of course, a uh, wonderful friend and one of the most followed people out for CMOs, CIOs, and CEOs on Twitter about anything happening on transformation, digital, and of course, life skills. But it's not about us. It's really about our awesome guests every Friday. Um, so who do we have to kick this off, Bala? Ray, you're absolutely right. And our first awesome guest is GradCon Chief Experience and Marketing Officer. I love the title, at Sprinkler. At Sprinkler's CEMO, Grad leads a team of modern marketeers focused on helping the world's most loved brands to create happy customers. Grad's title CXMO reflects Sprinkler's view that in a world where customers are connected and empowered like never before, experience is the new brand. Before joining Sprinkler, Grad spent 11 years at Microsoft with the last seven years as CMO of Microsoft's US commercial business. There, powered by Sprinkler, he built the world's largest customer experience center, analyzing and responding to 150 million plus social messages per year. Just think about that number. Prior to that, Grad worked as CEO and CMO at a number of startups. You can follow Grad on Twitter uh, at G-R-A-D-C-O-N-N. Welcome, Grad, to Disrupt TV. Thank you. Loved it. I'm really super happy to be here, and I, I love all the enthusiasm. It's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific. Hey, this is wonderful. And one of the things, things that's happening, right, is this experience revolution that's going on everywhere, right? And, you know, Sprinkler started out, as we all know, in the social media channels. It's the beginning of that experience piece. But we know that we're trying to get through lots of different areas, lots of different places. And experiences today are immersive. They're ambient. They're happening all the place. But social media is still a big foundation of that. Why is that, Brad? I mean, we thought, you know, this is a fad. I mean, we're sitting in South by Southwest. We're like, oh, yeah, social media is going to be fun. It's like 2008. It's 2009. It's 2020. People are still using it. So what's going on here? Well, and it, it, it's always changing. The way I actually don't like using the word social. I don't, I don't actually say social uh, almost ever. Uh, mm -hmm. I always talk about modern channels. Because the, the real switch that happened is that when broadband became pervasive around the turn of the century, and then mobile kind of became more pervasive with the introduction of the iPhone in 2007, those mm -hmm. sort of two innovations created an opportunity for people to be more connected on a day-to-day -day basis. So a bunch of businesses just sort of took advantage of that connectivity. And you think about Friendster was introduced in 2002. LinkedIn, mm -hmm. which is a super old grandpa, that's 2002 as well. Amazing. Oh my God, 18 uh, no, years on LinkedIn. LinkedIn actually, years. LinkedIn precedes MySpace, which was 2003. Wow. Then Facebook came out in 2004, managed to cross the sort of chasm to from sort of broadband and PC computing to uh, mobile. And then a bunch of everything else that's come out since then has been all mobile-based. But what you're looking at is a set of technologies leveraging this connected universe. And so, you know, if you think about the 20th century, it was a broadcast universe. You know, people were being talked mm -hmm. to by brands, right? So I would have a message, I would send it to you, you would passively listen. And things like television and uh, movie theaters and radio, those were all 20th century inventions. And the popularization of magazines and newspapers and stuff also sort of part of that time. The 21st century, this new connected universe, allowed new types of media to emerge. And this new types of media, I would kind of characterize as conversational media. Mm. And in a conversational media, you actually have a two-way conversation. You typically know who you're talking to, and you know very much about their interests and what they're into. It's a very different type of world. And so when people talk about experience and, and sort of these modern channels, it really is that the modern channels have enabled a new way of just talking and discussing 
that has created a new expectation. By Does that create thing. acceleration, right? It's engagement, right? We're always on, we're always jumping in, right? Well, or, you know, you better talk to me like you know me because I just spent thousands of dollars with you. That's a little <laughs> bit of the mindset, right? And we were willing to accept that back, you know, 20 years ago. But now it's like, and if you don't treat me like you know me, given that I have put so much into you, then I'm going to go find someone who does. And the other thing that's happened is there are enough new born in the cloud businesses out there who do know how to do experience that if I'm not getting the experience I want from say a traditional company, which they're quite frankly, they struggle because of their silos, then I'll go somewhere else where I have a much better experience and have a much, much, much better time. That's a, that's a, that's a great point. Uh, digital native companies, born mobile, born social, born in the cloud, definitely understand the importance of personalization at scale and having that conversation. And there are multiple modern channels as you mentioned, that have a billion plus monthly active users. So the most time spent on the web is on these modern channels. And, uh, and, and so it's critically important for businesses to understand that the conversation is happening and they need to be active and engaged on these channels. But how do these companies do that? I still see companies spending on point solutions, trying to deliver a customer, a good customer experience or engagement. When we know on average, customers are using on average 10 different channels, many of them modern channels to engage with the brand. So don't you need to go beyond these point solutions to figure out how to orchestrate a conversation that's meaningful across multiple channels? Yeah, and then and when you, let's just kind of land the channels for a second too, because when we say modern channels, it is the social platforms, but it, there's 24 of those now, including TikTok. But as well, there are 11 <laughs> messaging platforms and messaging is growing faster than anything else. Yes, there are 60, get, this is a crazy stat. There are 60 billion messages being sent every day on the planet of which 9 billion are being sent to businesses every day, every day. Not all businesses are responding to them because they're not seeing them, but they are being sent. And um, don't forget the forums. We're seeing Reddit as being one of the most important places for many of our customers now. And there's hundreds of those. Um, there's obviously all the blogs and you've got news sites and you've got review sites. If you add up all that stuff, that's about 500 million other sources that are talking about you and your business. The, so the, the, and if you look at this great Mary Meeker slide where she talks about generational contact preferences with businesses, and you can see that the sort of the silent generation or the greatest generation or the people born in the forties, they love the telephone. But as you march through the generations, once you get to generation X and especially generation Y, you'll see that it's a strong preference for social, chat, you know, all the asynchronous communication models. And the older folks like the synchronous communication models. And it's just because of the way we work, I can't sit there on a phone for 20 minutes talking to somebody, I'm handling multiple things at once. So what companies need to do is they need to come up with two things. One is they need to get a mindset change around being where their customers prefer to be. Right. Too many businesses today will see a customer approach them through say Reddit or through a different channel or through a DM on Twitter or whatever it is. And they'll say, great, please call our 1-800 number. <laughs> it'd be like, it'd be like, the, like the two of you saying, hey, Grab, we want to do an interview with you. And I'm like, yeah, that's cool. Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you my fax number. <laughs> And we'll just fax the questions back and forth. We'll just cool. That'd be cool, right? You're like, I'm so sorry. No. I'm out of toner. I'm out of toner. Yeah, yeah. I'm out of toner. <laughs> Pick up the phone. Call me. It's like, what is going on? Like we switch people to channels they don't even want to be on because that's the way we built our infrastructure. So the mindset shift, if I want to be where my customers are, is important. And that's happening pretty quickly right now because enough companies are doing it that you risk having significant competitive disadvantage by not doing that. And then the second thing is you need to put in a platform that can look at all of those channels at the same time. So you've got a single interface for your team that they can collaborate around, a single way to create a customer ID. So all of their comments from multiple places are collected. And then you can connect it to your CRM system and have a, a very robust view of the customer from both the transactions they've performed in CRM and what they're doing and saying in CXM. 
so, you know, if you think about the way I run my business at Sprinkler, I obviously use Sprinkler. I get a great deal on it. Um, <laughs> I really work the sales guys on it. Uh, and, no, I won't pay anything. Uh, and, <laughs> pay me to use this software. Yeah, you pay me. Uh, and so what happens uh, with uh, the way we're set up is we've got Salesforce as our CRM system, obviously an awesome system. And then we have uh, uh, Sprinkler as our CXM system. Sprinkler is my entire marketing stack. So it's my full marketing stack. And the two systems work together. And so whenever I'm talking to somebody, there's a single profile, both in Salesforce and in Sprinkler, that connects the data from both systems. So I can see what the person's purchased from us and what their sort of overall sort of transaction history is with us. And I can see what they've said about us in different places and things that they've done on the web and emails that they've read. I can, so it's a very complete picture. So when I'm talking to them, I'm talking to them intelligently and I'm talking to them like a human being and I can recognize their issues and I can recognize their preferences. It's a much more compelling experience for the customer. Now with all these channels, people using everything everywhere, I don't like the word omni-channel, so we call them immersive experiences. Is that why the front office is a mess, right? Because it's like, you never know what channel people want to be in. They never know how you want it to be immersive, you know? Yeah, well, the statement that the front office is a mess is that's nothing truer has been said. Okay, so that's you're dead on there. But to be fair, you know, the back office took 40 years to straighten out, right? And so we're, we're, and we're kind of like the back offices, there's still lots of back office projects, but I think we're getting to a point where we're feeling pretty good about the back office. But that was a non-trivial amount of work and companies like, um, you know, SAP had to emerge to make that happen. And SAP, if you think about SAP, say in 1994, already a 10 year old company, but pretty immature compared to SAP today, and but already providing a lot of value in the mid 90s, right? And so I think if you look at sort of the front office, it's the same thing, right? So the front office, you've got a whole pile of point solutions that we all kind of went out and just 91, uh, 91 point solutions is the average number of point solutions that a marketing department has today. Wow. Uh, HR is 90. <laughs> okay, so they, nine, they're the, those are two leading. I was actually at one very large company. Um, uh, it, it was sitting down with their CDO. And, uh, and I used this stat about 91 average. And uh, he said, Brad, we aspire to get down to 91. Uh, so it's even worse than a lot of big companies, right? All right, so let's so, invest in integration. If we just go so, after integration, yeah. we're gonna make tons of money for the next 10 years is what you're telling Well, I don't think it's integration. The problem is these are all cloud applications. They're all updating every week. The APIs can't possibly connect. You might invest in sort of, someone might create a, try to create a middle layer that everyone connects to, but it'll be very hard to drive that standard. Mm -hmm. What you're actually seeing is people taking out the point solutions and replacing them with SAP-like platforms. Right, and so one of the ways that we're referred to at Sprinkler is we're referred to as the SAP of the front office. Uh, mm -hmm. And that we're effectively trying to do in the front office what SAP did in the back office, uh, which I think is a pretty compelling vision. And I think that's a lot of our customers who are you know, very large customers use us that way. And they, I was actually Sprinkler's first customer when I was CMO at Microsoft. And the, um, what I did is I used Sprinkler to push out all these point solutions and saved you know, millions of dollars a year. It was a fantastic. I never told them how much money I was saving, but it was, a, <laughs> it, was a, it was a really great deal for me. It was a sprinkler was free for me. I never paid for sprinkler because every time I deployed more of it, I, I saved money versus what I was paying for. <laughs> awesome. so can, you, can you give us some examples, uh, whether it's marketing or customer service? I used to be a chief customer officer before I joined Salesforce. And I felt that customer service was the line of business that most represented our brand promise. 70% of all contact with our customers came through our contact centers, only 30% with other channels yeah. outside of service. So how are your clients using Sprinkler, whether it's in service or marketing, to improve the customer experience? So, so Sprinkler's got five products. Um, our fastest growing is our customer care product. Uh, and, uh, and that is, uh, there's so much coming in over these modern channels. Now we had one client in uh, South America, uh, enabled WhatsApp and a large insurance company. They enabled WhatsApp, uh, within a month, 10% of all call volume was switched over to WhatsApp, not wow. because they made it just because that's what people wanted to use. Right. And right. they'll probably be 50% WhatsApp within a year. Uh, once people sort of realize it and the, the things popular. Wow. So what we're seeing is that, um, and for the company, it's great because it's actually way less expensive to service a customer 
on on WhatsApp or on Modern Channel versus a phone call. Uh, so the company wins. Uh, the agents actually prefer it. It's a lot easier to do. And particularly some of the messaging platforms, you know, I can uh, switch. So it's kind of multimodal, right? So I can, nope, I can nope. start with a text message, right? And then I'm like, oh, well, here's a picture of the broken thing, right? right? And then, oh, man, this is too difficult to describe in text. Can I just call you quick? <laughs> and then I'll do a quick video call and I'll show you like the video. Then I'll go back to text again because I got like someone in the front door. And the, this multimodal way of working, that's what people are used to doing. And that's why when you force someone onto a phone, they're like, what is this thing? Like, I, I can't show you pictures. And like, this is garbage, right? And so that's where we're seeing a big part of it. One of the other things I'll note on customer care is about, we see this over and over again with customers. Uh, who deploy us is that about 30% of all the calls going into customer care departments are actually product purchase queries. Ooh, wow. Now that's interesting. 30%. I would have expected like something yeah. else. No, I know. So. I know. And most people don't measure it. I think if you measure it, you'll find that seems to be a pretty magic number. It seems pretty normal. normal. And there's a little bit of a mindset that people have, which is um, I think I trust these people more. They're easy to get to, and they probably have the right information versus kind of contacting a marketer or a salesperson. And so they, but most customer care departments are gold on getting people off the phone as quick as possible and on solving problems, not on selling things. And so in most cases, these product queries, which are legitimate purchase inquiries, they're like literally thrown on the floor. They're like just they're a byproduct that they just think it's a, it's a waste of time in customer care. And I think that the lack of integration between customer care and marketing is probably the biggest opportunity and the biggest challenge for most companies. So we also have a marketing platform. We have an engagement platform, which is sort of where we started. We have a research platform, uh, which is um, uh, important. Then we have an advertising platform. So all the kind of core front office functions are in Sprinkler. And what we do is we always deploy as a single instance uh, and on a single platform where all the functions are available. So in a company, everyone is in the same front office using the same platform and able to collaborate around the same customer ID. And when that starts to work well, it's pretty magical. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm excited for the next decade because I've got this growing cache of amazing customer stories from incredible companies like L'Oreal and Procter & Gamble and Microsoft and Dell and... Um, uh, Nike and uh, you know the list kind of goes on. Cisco's a great customer, and and as we start to sort of tell those stories to people, um, people get super excited because they realize that they could do that in their business as well. One of my favorite customers right now is Rustoleum. Uh, Rustoleum is you know the paint company, right? Yeah. And uh, and they're just like a chemical company, and about as traditional as you can get. They supply all the paint that uh, is used to paint the Golden Gate Bridge, because you know how it's being continuously painted. <laughs> That's all Rust-Oleum paint there, right? <laughs> and, uh, and they have you know, hundreds and hundreds of paint varieties, but they can't run media for each one of those varieties, right? Because it's too hard. Mm -hmm. And so I was talking to the CMO and she has literally hundreds of use cases in Sprinkler now where Sprinkler is her primary marketing tool. And what she does is she just goes and finds the people who would be interested in that particular paint. For example, they introduced a glitter paint and the glitter paint, they you know, stick it on the shelf at Home Depot and just sits there. Because, you know, first of all, who knew that even existed? And then secondly, <laughs> who's like uh, waking up in the morning and like, you know, today I'm going to go to Home Depot, buy some glitter paint. It just doesn't happen. So what they did do, they used Sprinkler. They went to all the Pinterest boards and they found everyone who had glitter boards. Wow. And they said, hey, by the way, did you know we make glitter paint? Oh. Off the shelves and went, right? Oh. They had this tub and tile thing where there's this crazy paint they have where you can paint your tub and it reglazes it. It's like just paint and it reglazes the tub. Who even knew that was a real product, right? It sounds like something made by magic, right? And so, so they introduced it, they put it on the shelves, it kind of sat there, you know, and people sort of, well, this is weird. Uh, so then instead they used sprinkler and they found everyone who's doing a bathroom renovation, talking about their tubs, talking about deglazing, talking about renovations, oh. off it went. And so this idea of micro-targeting and finding people where they are and finding the interest and being able to deliver a product that meets their needs is very compelling. And I think in customer care, to your earlier question, super compelling because when I call in in customer care, the first thing we want to do is we want to stop advertising to them because they've got a care issue. So when you're on a single platform, that's one thing our platform does. It'll stop ads to that person with the product that they're having problems with. But then also look at what else can we help them with? How else can we have conversations with them and then be able to market to them in a helpful way? 
Because at the end of the day, people love personalized advertising that's relevant and helpful. If I'm looking for something and trying to find a thing to solve a problem, I'm very excited about that. What drives people crazy about advertising is all this irrelevant garbage they have no interest in. That's what makes people love advertising. They just don't like irrelevant advertising. That's like kind of always been true. So you're, you're helping marketeers or customer care professionals really act like surgeons. They're precision marketing, precision care. So there's fantastic relevancy, timeliness, and uh, personalization that makes it more of a meaningful, trustworthy uh, engagement. And I think that's super powerful, super powerful. Yeah, it depends yeah. on the surgeon, I guess, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but this is amazing. Right? Like, I mean, that maybe I wouldn't want to emulate. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking back this Rust-Oleum stuff. It's amazing. There's just like cool? 40 different brands. People don't even know this. But hey, one last question before we go. How did your P&G experience shape where you are today? I mean, you were at the heart of P&G during the heyday of product marketing, brand marketing, right? And uh, how does that change? I mean, we're, we're in enterprise today, so. Well, there were three things. One was I, I happened to work for amazing, amazing managers. Um, I knew they were amazing at the time. They all went on, like, you know, like last one, Bob McDonald ended up becoming CEO of the whole company. Yep. But yep. Uh, Fernando Aguirre ended up becoming CEO of Chiquita. Tim Penner became CEO for PNG Canada. So they all had great careers, but I, I got incredible mentorship. That was the first thing. Second thing is, you know, PNG is such a great education because you're right out of school and they essentially say, okay, now we got to teach you about what marketing is. And so, and you're literally in classrooms learning about that every day. And that was, that was awesome. And the other thing I think was interesting about PNG for me is that we're, um, we're really kind of on this sort of, the, I kind of got in there kind of on the tipping point between the, the sort of the traditional world and the, the world of work we live in today. Uh, so when I started, they didn't even have voicemail. And then a year later we did, right? So it's just kind of, I got for a moment. Ooh, I tell, seven, delete. <laughs> I got, and I had just for a moment, I got a, just a taste of what, a, what it probably would have been like working in business when my dad was working. And then, then moved to a new world that's kind of the way everything is today. And so it was a really interesting sort of education from both a mentor, actual education, and then just sort of environmental standpoint. It's always fun to see moments where things change. This is awesome. We're here with Grad Khan, Chief Experience and Marketing Officer at Sprinkler. You can follow him at G-R-A-D-C-O-N-N. -N. Definitely someone we're going to want at some point at our Ambient Experience Summit. We'll talk about that sometime. Cool. So, hey, thanks for being on the show. Happy Friday. And, Happy uh, Friday. Hope to catch up with you again. You, thanks. You were terrific. Thank you. That was awesome. That was terrific. Wow, it's, uh, I love the title, Chief Experience Marketing Officer. Experience is the product. So if you're going to market anything, start with experience because we're in an experience-led economy. And uh, now to our second guest. It's our privilege to have Dr. Wayne Baker, professor and author. Congratulations. I think the book was launched in New York City just this week on Tuesday. All you have to do is ask how to master the most important skill for success. Dr. Wayne Baker is a Robert P. Thome Professor of Business Administration and Professor of Management and Organization at University of Michigan's Ross School of Business and Faculty Director of the Center for Positive Organizations. I love that. Dr. Baker is the author of a, of, of a newly launched book, uh, How to uh, um, have, have to Do is Ask, as, as well as five other books and many scholarly articles. Focus on social media, social network, generosity, and positive organizations. Dr. Baker has contributed to Harvard Business Review, Chief Executive Magazine, and Sloan Management Review. You can follow Dr. Uh, Baker's work on Twitter at D-R-W-A-N, I'm sorry, W-A-Y-N-E-B-A-K-E-R. Welcome, Dr. Baker, to Disrupt TV. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. Hey, thanks, thanks a lot. Thanks for being on the show. Um, one of my favorite books, uh, not what we're talking about right now, but was United America. I love the core values. I love the things that you kind of pulled out about the things that brought us together. Um, but now you're actually doing something very, very different here. And I think it's really important. You're asking people, um, why? Why do we rarely give ourselves permissions to ask for help? And I think this is happening everywhere. I think people are afraid to ask for help. What's behind that? And why is this, you know, why is this happening? given the fact that information is everywhere. People are like, you know, supposed to be more social. We're supposed to be engaging with everybody and we're afraid to ask for help. Well, it's so true. Uh, when you think about it, um, if you just try to do your job yourself, you're gonna be limited. You know, you might be the smartest guy, but probably not smarter than the other five people that you could 
bring together and brainstorm a little bit and get some ideas and get some creativity going uh, and so forth. And what we have found through research I've done and others have done is that when we do give ourselves permission to ask and we ask for what we need when we need it, uh, we become more efficient, more effective, more creative. You kind of get the inflow of all the information, knowledge, advice, even political support, social support that you might need uh, to be productive. And we have found that in the workplace, 70 to 90% of the help that is given is in response to requests for help. And yet most people don't ask. And so all those resources sit out there kind of dormant and, and unused. And you said there's a lot of reasons uh, why we don't ask. There's a number of things that get in the way and I can relate a couple of them. One is that we often don't ask because we're afraid we're going to be seen as uh, incompetent or weak or can't do our jobs. And yet there's some new research uh, that's come out by a team from at Wharton and Harvard that says, you know, as long as you make a thoughtful intelligent, intentional request, people will think you are more competent, not less. So there, the research helps us to update our beliefs about, uh, about some of the assumptions about things that might hold us back from asking. Another is that we don't ask uh, because we think no one can help us. So mm -hmm. in the book, I have a, it's a how-to book. I have a lot of tools that individuals, teams, and organizations can use. And when I use some of these myself, either with companies or in the classroom, Invariably, I have somebody comes, comes, you know, comes and whispers in my ear and says, you know, I'm not going to ask for what I really need because I know <laughs> no one can help me. And my answer is always the same, which is you never know what people know or who they know until you ask. That's great. That's great, great advice. You know, I think of Adam Grant when he talks about there are takers, there are givers. And I don't know what the third one, reciprocators, or, but, you know, folks that... Matchers. <laughs> That's right, matchers, right. Matchers, matchers, yep. So, so, so I'm, always, uh, I'm always mindful of making sure it's right-sizing the ask, uh, knowing that sometimes the ask is really big and, and, and you really haven't invested perhaps enough in the relationship to make a big ask. So how do you, how do you guide individuals to strategically achieve their goals in terms of how they ask for help? Yeah, there's a couple of important things. And you mentioned uh, Adam. Um, I'm very proud to say that Adam Grant was a PhD student here at the University of Michigan. <laughs> and why I would love to claim him officially as my student. Of course, I didn't know him and we learned from one another. He wasn't officially my student, um, but I've been in touch with him and we've been, yes. you know that we're actually business partners now, that we've created a-, a Oh, startup. wow. Yes, we created a startup called Give and Take Inc. Um, I didn't have, know that. I didn't know that. Wow. Yes, it's sort of a combination of, of Adam's book, Give and Take, and my book, All You Have to Do is Ask. If you kind of put those together and create a digital platform, awesome. uh, we call it Givitas, kind of a combination of giving and <laughs> Givitas. It's got a two-sided network on this thing. Yeah, that's right. And uh, Both, both yeah, of us so come back on the show and talk about the company. Oh, that would be awesome. I would love to do that. So one of the great things about being a, a business school professor is that you do the research and teaching, but you can be entrepreneurial if you want. Yes. Yes. In fact, uh, the University of Michigan has invested in our technology as well. Oh, yeah. So uh, helps for it. I'd love to be back another time and we could talk about that. Absolutely. So, uh, so to get to your, uh, your question about if you want to make an ask, if you want to make a request, the kind of things you want to think about, I think it's important to pause first and to be intentional. You want to think about what are you trying to accomplish? What's a goal that you have in mind? Something you're trying to accomplish. I have uh, three different methods in the book for doing that. Um, some take longer than others, but they're all ways of helping people to pause and to think about, okay, what am I trying to achieve here? Okay, I've got that down. Okay, then what is a resource that I need that's going to help me to accomplish that goal or at least move in the direction of accomplishing that goal? All right, I've got that down. I know it is maybe what I need is maybe it's expert advice. That's what I need. The next step would say, all right, let me formulate this um, in a well-structured way. And so I have five criteria. There are smart criteria, although I use some of those elements of smart a little bit different for me. Mm -hmm. uh, so S is for specific. And the reason you want to make a specific request is that it triggers people's memories of what they know and who they know. The, uh, the most general request I ever heard, and general requests never get any help. The most general one was from a, uh, uh, an executive from the Netherlands who said, my request 
is for information. <laughs> How did you respond to that? Well, I looked at him, I said, well, could you elaborate? And he goes, no, I can't, it's confidential. I can't say anything more about it. And I said, okay, you know, he was very generous. He helped a lot of people in the activity that day but he got no help because no one knew how they could help him. They didn't know what he was talking about. So you want to be specific. Uh, the M in uh, the standard definition of, of smart is measurable mm -hmm. and measurability is nice. But what I use M for is it's meaningful. Mm. Why are you making the request? It's meaningful. So I imagine a Salesforce, for example, um, if you're making a request of your boss, you would say, it's going to help me to be more effective at solving this problem, which is going to help you meet your goals. And it's going to help us. It's going to serve the company's objectives, right? That would be part of the why. And in that case, there'd be like three tiers to it, but say, here's why I'm doing it. We found that the why really motivates people to respond. And so the, um, so that's the M the A is for action. You ask for something to be done. A goal is not a request. Sometimes people will say, in fact, I found this is true is that uh, of the upper level executives will tend to state goals and not requests. Hmm. And so, you know, a goal is a destination. A request is something that helps you move towards attaining that goal. So what's the action that you want? Um, so that's that criteria. The R is for strategically realistic. So you want it to be, it can be a stretch and people yeah. have, accomplish huge things by asking for what they really needed. Um, but it has to be strategically sound as well. So if you say, I want to colonize Mars uh, next year, probably not going to happen. Um, but I have heard some pretty outrageous requests that actually really got a lot of help. I could tell you about some of those at some point. Um, so let's see, then he is time bound. You want to, you want to have a deadline on it. And we have found that a very specific deadline will really motivate people to respond. So, if you need it by end of business today, say so, and that will motivate people. But if you say, oh, it's January 2020, sometime this year, it's hard for people to respond to that. Is it harder to ask for help when you're successful? Do you find through your research as you achieve success and, you know, you, you know, when was, when was the last time you asked for help? I mean, you're a best-selling author, professor, entrepreneur. Uh, is it harder for you or easier for you to ask for help? And, and related to that question is like, are there certain postures that you have that make it hard for people to feel like they can help you? Yeah. Yeah. So there's a, a couple of things we could talk about. Uh, if you read the acknowledgements to my book, it starts out this way. I asked a lot of people for help with this book. <laughs> and I have, a, I have a very long list of people in there um, that I acknowledge for helping me out with the book. Uh, I want to do an interview with someone or uh, with the Givitas software, actually, actually have an acknowledgement to a piece of software, which is this Givitas platform, <laughs> because I'm a member of a couple of different communities that we have. One is an HR community for HR directors from all over. And when I was looking for a new example or a fresh example, I would post a request in Givitas and say, I'm writing this book. It's going to come out in January of 2020. And I need an example about X and five or six, seven strangers from around everywhere would respond with these great examples. Right. So yeah. there was one, for example, I got a, a I was looking for a, a recognition systems where you can use a recognition system to give kudos or thanks or something, particularly in a large organization where it's a little hard to do that. Um, you can't always do it face to face. And so I got connected with someone uh, in Alaska who is the HR director for one of the Aboriginal corporations. Now, oh. I never would have met that person wow. in any way, except by asking in this platform. Um, and then it brings forth all this generosity. So there, there must be at least 100 people or more that I acknowledge. And so I ask for help all the time. And the result is, is that, you know, my work is better. Um, hmm. I think the book is, comes alive because of so many stories and real examples where people taught me. Now, you asked a question about when people, yeah, so on the other hand, I guess I have to be the expert every now and then, and I'll play that role when I, when I need to in the classroom. <laughs> um, but, you know, I found that um, it becomes more of a problem for executives mm. because they got there by being so successful. Mm. And after a while, some executives develop what I call the sage syndrome, which is that they have to be the great sage. They're the font of all wisdom and knowledge. And you come to them and they've got the answers. And sometimes they do, maybe often they do. Mm. But everyone 
no matter where they are, needs help. Like I think every executive needs kind of an informal network of maybe other executives, maybe even outside of the organization that they can have as kind of a brain trust that they can go to and they can confide with um, and they can, you know, kick around difficult problems and get people's mm -hmm. advice and so forth. So um, one of my heroes that I, that I write about in the book is the, uh, the director of the Detroit Institute of Arts. And I was giving a talk about this, uh, oh, maybe about two years ago. And when I was starting to put together the book and he came forward and he said, he goes, this is the way I run the DIA. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, when I took over as CEO and director of the Detroit Institute of Arts, um, I did something that kind of shocked everyone is that I started making requests of my staff, you know, and they were like, they really weren't sure what to do. But then he became a role model of the behavior that he wanted. So I always tell executives, if you want to create a culture of reciprocity and generosity in the workplace where people sure. give and get help from one another, you've got to do it too. You can't say, I want all of you to ask when you need right. something, but I'm not going to ask. You have to be vulnerable and you have to do it too. Sure. You know, sure. Salvador has an awesome organization with a hundred galleries out there. And, uh, yeah, yeah, so you know Salvador. I, I know of him. He's, he's pretty well known for uh, yeah, yeah. transforming that, uh, the way they do their exhibits, the way they bring in their patrons. Yeah, yeah. They've done a wonderful job over there. So, hey, let's talk about the law of giving and receiving, right? I mean, I, I think that's kind of interesting because people don't really understand. Um, it, it, it's actually, it's, there's a lot of interesting parallels, but I'll, I'll let you explain that. But it, it's a very interesting approach to actually being able to receive advice as well. That's so. right. So the, the law of giving receiving means that we have an obligation as humans, as participants in this world, to be generous, to give, to help, but also to request to let our needs be known, to voice our requests. And they have to play both parts. Uh, so Bala, you mentioned before the three types that Adam writes about in give and take, the giver, the taker, and the matcher. For me, there's a fourth type that I call the giver requester. That is the person <laughs> who freely and generously helps and asks, who makes requests. And you wanna be both, whether you as an individual, you want a team to behave that way or an entire organization uh, to behave that way. And as I was thinking about this, I discovered a, um, a really great report by the Fetzer Institute where they wrote about this idea of giving and receiving. And they said, you know, we're pretty ambivalent and conflicted when it comes to the role of the receiver, but mm. there can be no receiving unless somebody asks and there's someone that is going to give. So you mm. imagine everyone wants to give, everyone mm. wants to be a giver, no one's willing to ask, nothing happens. Nothing mm. happens, there's standstill. Yeah, so giving and receiving is a cycle. There's no giving without receiving. There's no receiving without giving. And it's the request that is the catalyst or the driver of that whole cycle. Absolutely. Terrific. Terrific. It was, uh, I think, Seth Godin who said, people are not afraid of failure. They're afraid of blame. How do you create a psychologically safe environment where, you know, you don't try to be the hero. You know, I think it was Albert Einstein who said, I'm not smarter than anyone else. I just stay with the problems longer. So there is this hero mentality, especially if you're self-motivated, self-taught, to want to grind and intentionally struggle to get to, you know, a milestone. But at the same time, it may be that you don't have a safe environment where you're comfortable asking for help. So what do leaders need to do? And I suspect your students love the fact that they have a professor who's welcoming, uh, being helpful and, and creating a culture of safety. How do you do that? How do you, what's your advice to CEOs in terms of shaping a culture of safety? Yeah, so it is easier to ask if you're in a psychologically safe place, whether it's at work or in a community or wherever. So if the workplace is psychologically safe to speak up, to admit mistakes, to make requests, then all the tools that I talk about will be even more effective. But what I also found is that even in a place that is psychologically unsafe, if you start using the tools, it will bit by bit become psychologically safer. And there's a couple of reasons why that works. So I have probably a dozen tools for teams that teams and groups can use uh, to practice the law of giving and receiving. Uh, they're all different variations of the same theme. And I'll give you a really quick example. Um, the stand-up, the stand-up, which is very common in software development and IT. Yeah which I think we use it our, at our Center for Positive Organizations. I think it could be widely used in any industry. It doesn't, it's not limited to technology. 
So at one organization I, I know here in town called Menlo Innovations, they produce user-centric, high-quality software. At 10 o'clock every morning, they have their stand-up. So everyone gets in the big circle, maybe about 50 or 60 people, and they go through, and there's three things. And now, this is, some of this is standard, but there's a little twist at the end. So here's what I worked on yesterday. Here's what I'm working on today. And here's the help that I need. Wow. Now, when you do that, you know that one, everyone's in the same boat psychologically. It's a lot easier to ask if you know everyone else is going to ask. Sure. Also, asking is a norm. It's now a routine. You're expected to do that. And not doing it is letting the group down. Wow. So I have other examples that, um, awesome. that are built on that same principle. If everyone does it, um, it makes it psychologically safer to do it. And, and, I also feel like and it's radical transparency. The fact that you're talking about what you did, what you're going to do, and you're asking for help, you're, you're giving visibility to the community in terms of, uh, you know, how we can together achieve success. That's tremendous. Yeah. I almost feel like it would be great to have this like simulation game and like augmented reality where people can play these different roles to see how you know, all the different types of what they can do. Like, because I think a lot of times people are locked into the roles they're in because they've been in the organization, they've been in the same patterns, they've seen the same people over the period of time, or they get typecasted as one role and they don't get an opportunity to expand or get into other roles. And that may be a way to help like management teams or leadership teams like see it in a different kind of light. Yeah. One thing that I emphasize is the importance of the uh, behavior first principle. So it's very hard to change people's attitudes and beliefs by just lecturing to them or trying to convince them. So what I say to the skeptical leader or manager is this to say, okay, look through these tools, you know, pick one that you and your team think you, you would try. I don't care if you believe in it or not. Will you just do it? Mm. Here's the steps. Will you commit to do it for 45 days, run the experiment, and invariably at the end, the experience becomes the evidence they need that changes their attitudes and updates their beliefs because now they get it. I've had many executives say, I don't believe this is gonna work. Um, Adam talks about this as well. Uh, he say, no, they'll come out, this will never work. But when they do it, at the end, they'll come up to me and they say, okay, now I get it, now I see, because they had the experience. That's true. That's amazing. We are here with Dr. Wayne Baker. He's the author of All You Have to Do is ask how to master the most important skills for success, author of seven other, I believe, seven other successful books, um, all different topics, ranging from anywhere from Detroit uh, to the American values. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Hope we get a chance to catch up, maybe at Zingerman's or Gandhi Dancer. But uh, hey, thanks a lot for being here. Thank great. you. Thank you, Ray. Great, Bella. <laughs> we'll be on the show. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Wow, that was, uh, that was awesome. Yeah, you know what? It takes courage to ask for help. And... Um, and, uh, you know, you know, you and I are bad for asking help. We, we keep helping people all the time. And I realized, like, I got to open up more to ask for help. Because there's lots of things. And I was reading through his book well, before we got here. And I'm like, yeah, well, you say that, but, uh, our next guest has helped us 15 times, Ray. Exactly. <laughs> Look at this. <gasps> yeah, so, but you help me, too. <laughs> I don't think we're shy asking Heather to help us. Uh, We're not shy of asking Heather to help. That's true. That's true. Episode 174, and Heather has been uh, on the show now 15 times. So first ballot Hall of Fame guest to disrupt TV. CCE Plenty. keynote speaker. So. <laughs> oh, woohoo! That was right. fun. That yeah. was fun. Oh, that was awesome. Mm -hmm. uh, we were referring to, we had a live Disrupt TV on stage. We have Heather Clancy, Editorial Director of Green Biz Group, as Editorial Director of GreenBiz.com. Heather covers the role of technology in enabling clean energy, sustainable business strategy, and the low carbon economy. She's an award-winning journalist specializing in transforming technologies innovation, also co-author of a best-selling book, Niche Down, How to Become legend Ooh. Legendary <laughs> by Being Different. And maybe asking for help. So that's awesome. <laughs> I do ask for help a lot. A lot, actually. You can uh, follow Heather. Not afraid. Follow Heather on Twitter at Green Tech Lady. Welcome back, Heather, to Disrupt TV. Thank you guys for having me back. Happy 2020. Yeah, there's statute 20, of limitations on that. Yeah, I don't know. But, <laughs> it's uh, when you meet. It's the first time you meet during the year you're allowed uh, to that's stay. That's what at. I always believe. <laughs> and I believe it has to be before January is over and you have to take down your Christmas tree. It's down. I I've did. still got mine up. Or if I you got a holiday tree or holiday decoration. But like I I, my Christmas tree is still up. But I did. <laughs> so, hey, what do you want to talk hey, about? <laughs> well, hey, look, 
I was really surprised, right? You know, one of the things that popped up was this letter from, you know, BlackRock of all places. Uh, I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, you know, Larry Fink is uh, talking about climate crisis and finance. So not usually two things that come together. So I, I think the intersectionality of that is, is kind of interesting. So, but I really want your perspective around this and your analysis. So this is actually something that he's been hinting towards for a couple of years now. He's, he mm -hmm. has come out and said this and it's a follow the money thing, right? And it's, it comes down to this. If BlackRock has money in a company that is not thinking about how climate change could affect their infrastructure, their factories, their supply chains, whatever, then they're not making a good fiduciary decision on behalf of their shareholders. And so what this letter that he came out with this week says is basically like, okay, folks, we've been saying this for the last mm, 18 months, two years. Now we're going to start voting on this principle. So, I mean, there's a, pr it's a pretty, you, if you look at the letter, it's, it's, they, they did a great job of making sure that you see the points because they have some pretty cool bolded statements, including this one which is given the groundwork we have already laid engaging on disclosure and the growing investment risks surrounding sustainability, we will be increasingly disposed to vote against management and board directors when companies are not making sufficient progress on sustainability related disclosures and the business practices and plans underlying them. So it's pretty clear. Um, they have been starting to vote this way. I will, I, I'm, I had a little bit of an argument with my boss this week on this one because I, um, they've been saying this and he's been good at about saying this. They haven't, their record has actually not been that great on this. Um, they've no. been saying it, but no, they haven't, um, they haven't taken quite the action that they should be taking in, in terms of the actual votes. They have started, but um, you know, anyway, I mean, so this is a follow the money announcement. And, but and is, this, is, this, is this like pre-Davos bluster where everyone goes no, out? No, 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 not at all. I mean, there are many, there are a lot of plenty of insurance companies in particular that are talking about this. You do not think about this as a company that wants finance uh, capital to grow your business. If you haven't considered this risk, it's a risk. Yeah. Plain and simple, it's a risk. And if you don't think about like AT&T is a great example, they um, have gone out and they're using analytics to just, to look at where climate change could affect the, the places they're thinking about putting new telecommunications infrastructure. You put mm. a, a, a switching center in this place and it floods. <laughs> well, right. you know, and, and, but so they're, they're using the models um, to, to, to extrapolate about where, and they're disclosing that. So, um, and that's part of it. Um, they, at very least, what BlackRock is asking is, is for companies to think about it and to talk about the risks and to disclose those risks. Right. right. And you mentioned analytics um, and analysis, and you wrote a long post on AI. <laughs> no, yes. I mean that in a good way. <laughs> she, went deep. she went deep on that one. I d uh, yeah, okay. On, uh, AI and uh, sustainability, and you said that the intersection of AI and sustainability is, is an exciting area. But you talked about two areas of not concern, but areas that you know you, you hope companies uh, invest more energy, uh, and and that's uh, uh, you know what's the data behind the AI predictions? Yeah, right. I'm sure, it's not flawed or, or biased. Mm -hmm. and also, view these systems, these systems that are powered by AI, as part of an overall solution, not replacement for human workers. So two areas yeah. of concern. Can you talk a little bit about that? So the first one is pretty simple, is if you look at many of the corporate uh, sustainability departments now in the world, I mean, and there's more of them every day. I mean, they, GM just uh, announced a new one yesterday. Mm -hmm. um, but these officers and, and their teams have been pretty you know, using, and no offense, Microsoft, <laughs> but Excel spreadsheets to keep all of this data. And they go out once a year and they collect this stuff and they stick them in and it's pretty manual so and they have they've been challenged for tools um and i i don't want to do a plug for for vala's company but i am going to do a plug for vala's company because um <laughs> one of the, the things that salesforce is doing is trying to help automate this and use different information and and and, and i will you'll piss you off by saying that also sap is doing a good job of, of integrating this into their supply chain um we, systems we, we love we love all the technology <laughs> Right, but there's there, there this tool, there's this tool called Tableau to that might off. help visualize better too. You might look at that. Uh, but, so. but, but the point being that number one, um, you got to make sure the data is clean before you yeah. start making these big, bold, 
decisions based on it. And, and that has been a challenge for the, the sustainability world. And the other thing is, you know, there are things that you don't want to have to be doing. Like uh, an example um, that I've used is wonderful. There's a, a warehouse, cold warehouse company in the Bay Area called Lineage Logistics. They're using artificial intelligence to help automate the energy management of their warehouses and to decide when they're going to turn the, the cold up and when they're going to let it off for a while. And they don't, I mean, the alternative is a human sitting in there and doing it manually. Well, that's a great example of you're not taking a job away. You're amplifying something that, that needs to be done and, and giving that energy manager um, time to do something more, more meaningful. Right. So. I just I just spoke to the uh, one of the evangelists at Google, and they used the AI algorithms for Go, playing against Go, and applied the algorithm to energy efficiency in Google data centers. Yes, and were able to yep. see a forty percent reduction in power. Yep, is, big wow. big deal. Um, they, they, mm -hmm. Yeah, and okay. that's live. I mean, that's not a pilot. <laughs> right. They're doing that. Right. Yeah, um, and they're also doing things like. Um, uh, and this is a, is a holy grail thing, but but just deciding where the energy is coming from. So you can kind of so if it's at night, you want to you maybe you're switching it to a wind data uh, wind power source, you know, because the solar obviously isn't going to work at night. So you have to have that um, intelligence to help you switch around the source as well. And that becomes increasingly important as companies want to actually match their actual load, their power load to a renewable source. Um, so it's it's cool. I mean, and I know I geek out on it, but it's um it's pretty compelling and there's there's other great examples biodiversity being able to see a forest disappearing literally um over time using time-lapse photography and you know and satellite um, and sensors and so forth it's it's um some pretty powerful stuff absolutely wow let's talk about buses and carb i live in california so carb <laughs> california air resource board um so, so what's going on here right because i'm putting buses electrification of buses you think that would have happened by now but there's this interesting ruling that says and policy that says hey we got to make these all out there by 2040 so what what's what's going on is, is the infrastructure there does the power grid support what's going on are the employers ready to jump in Yes, no, all of the above. <laughs> yes, no, uh, yes, check. My, sorry, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so what inspired this conversation was a, a story that one of my colleagues, Katie Fernbacher, did this week um, for us. And she was looking at, I mean, I mean, and I don't live out in the Bay Area, but I know that the 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 bus fleets that, that all the companies run out there to, to take people up and down the peninsula mm -hmm. has been, right? So the, the, you know, there's thousands of, of these, these vans and buses. Um, and guess what? Most of them are not anywhere near being uh, more sustainable than a, a, a regular diesel bus. So Genentech actually is uh, taking a stand on this and they've started buying uh, electric commuter buses for their, their employees. Um, they've got, um, I don't know, they've, they've only got 10, if you will, every, every, that are coming up and down. But, but, but the point being that by half of the, the end of this year, half of them will be electric. So what's been the challenge on this? A couple things. One is that, you know, clearly the, the, the big vehicles haven't been there, but there are some companies that they're working on this now, BYD, Proterra. Um, but I think the thing that we'll, we'll see happening this year is that many of the companies like Google and, and, and um, Facebook that have been talking up a good game about renewable energy are going to have to start making decisions about the the transportation and this, and this is a particularly big area for them because you know because of what they already do there um the public stuff is going to be transitioning but slower um and you know it comes down to, again money um you know how do you have the money to invest in it um there's a case to be made at this at the municipal level mm. that these things are are cheaper to maintain over time but you do have to invest in the charging infrastructure and that takes a lot of planning a year, 18 months ahead. You do need to be, make sure the capacity is there. And so is it, what's the capacity, what's running it? And, you know, lots of, lots of challenges, but it's a, it's a good year for, for this, this discussion. Oh, awesome stuff to hear. Absolutely. So, any, any 2020 resolutions um, before we jump into Microsoft? <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, what are my 2020 resolutions? Green my resolutions. Green resolutions. <laughs> for, for me specifically? Or, no, just or, for companies, companies that the, they should be thinking about, so. Yes, one, I do, I have one. And, and, and actually this gets us into Microsoft. 
Stop letting the deniers get away with murder in the press. Talk about why this is important for you as a business and um, get involved in, in some of the advocacy. And I'm not saying to be like, you know, go be a, uh, protesting on the streets or anything, but companies need to be talking about why climate change is a problem for them. And don't let the people that are uh, the fossil fuels interests spend all that money to lobby against you. Get out there and get involved. And, and so Microsoft has said, that was one of the things they said yesterday, and I'll let you ask me about what they what else they said in a moment. But what else did they say? They have, <laughs> but they have said clearly. They've said, "Listen, we need um, we need to get our business ready for this this new reality. One of the things that we need to do is remove carbon. We need to get not just emit less carbon. We mm. need to actually go out and and start helping remove it. And that's going to take investments in technology." And so one thing Microsoft has said that they're going to do is help talk about uh, carbon uh, policies that, that are now allow for investments in direct air capture systems, um, carbon capture and storage. This is coming back around. I know it was kind of a big thing maybe five to eight years ago, a lot of talk about these technologies, and it was just so fundamentally hard to invest because it's so expensive. We need, we need, um, we need government incentives for this and that there's no getting around it. Um, the businesses have been, quite frankly, a lot of them have been doing a lot, but they need to get some of these regulations out of the way and they need help with um, being inspired to invest in things. So that would be my resolution. Very long one, but <laughs> as a company, you have to not sit on the sidelines on this. You have to talk about what's good for you uh, in, yeah, in, this, and, in this world. And they announced uh, investing a billion dollars to it, go carbon negative. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, and you wrote that you know when you're producing 60 million metric tons of carbon this year, that's a that's a that, that's a challenge and that's a tall order. So it requires investments and innovation in order to achieve that. So this Microsoft announcement is is huge. Um, I first of all, no one else that I'm aware of has used that word car, that phrase carbon negative. And what that means is that they're not just trying to be, you know, neutral mm -hmm. and make sure that they're 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 not grow, you know, that their their carbon emissions don't grow any faster than what they're they're taking out. They're going back into the past and they're saying we have a debt. We've done we've created this debt and we are going out to actively remove this. And that's part of what with this announcement. And I have not not heard any other company say that. Now, mind you, they're saying it. Getting there will be a, a lot harder to do, and th and that money, one billion dollars, it like for me, it's like mind-boggling. But it's going to need a lot. We're going to need a lot more of that. And one one of the things they're hoping to do with that money is get others to put money in. Mm -hmm. um, so, like a, a government is going to be more likely to invest in something or put some public money into that if there's all of these companies lined up to put money in as well, a private-public sharing of the infrastructure investments and so forth but um it's a this is a this is a big major deal. announcement in my world it's a big deal um big and deal. yeah it is a big deal now mind you on the other hot side of it guess what they have a huge reliance on companies and customers in the oil and gas industry yes um and they've been pretty vocal about saying that they they feel like they need to keep working with these companies in order to help them make the transition so you know a lot of there there's a lot of people that would say employees included microsoft should just cut the ties don't have relationships with the, those companies um but for the time being that is not going to happen i mean they're 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 Brad Smith, I mean, the people, by the way, the people in that behind this announcement, Brad Smith, the, the CEO, I mean, like everyone was behind this, this announcement yesterday, stand, pretty big stand up in, um, in Seattle. And they're not going to, they're not going to walk away from that business. They, they hope to influence that business to think about the transition, whatever that means, whether that means investing in themselves, investing in carbon capture, maybe, maybe all the Chevrons and the Schlumbergers are going to be Microsoft's partners in this. I mean, that would be, that would be very logical um, from, from, from my standpoint. There's a lot of work there because thinking about what's required, the big data and all the stuff on the back end, these are all important things to get mm -hmm. people there, mm -hmm. right? You well, need a lot of compute power and you're going to need a lot of technology help. There's only two energy companies that are part of the Paris Accord. And I believe there's only one Repsol 
that's committed to carbon neutral by 2050. Yes. So of yeah. all Repsol is yep. the only one that I know of. But, but I mean, the, the bottom line, though, is that, you know, to grow the world, we need power, we need energy, right. and, and to grow emerging economies, and you can't, it, right. and, and it's a reality. Absolutely. So you have to get that sector to move, and if you're going to be in a place to help them, then, you know, use your relationships. Right. All right. Well, hey, sorry, we could go on for hours and hours here with Heather Clancy, Editor Director, Green Biz Group. You can follow her on Twitter at Green Tech Lady. Thanks so much for being out here. Thanks guys. for giving. Thanks You're for giving and sharing as well. So. We love asking for help when it comes to going to Heather. So <laughs> we are on episode 174 here. Awesome. What's going on next week, Bala? Episode 175. We have Irina Cronin. And CEO at Infinite Retina. We're going to talk Ooh, about that's going to be cool, man. RBR. She's brilliant and she's got brilliant colleagues. We're going to learn a lot. Svetletna Finchel, Senior Manager, Organizational Excellence, Leadership Excellence, Special Olympics as our guest. And Doug Henshin, Vice, Pre Vice President, Principal Analyst at Constellation Research, Data to Decision Making, one of our favorite guests returning for next week. So if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Ray, closing remarks. Hey, everybody have a great Friday. Remember to give, remember to ask. I think we're going to have an interesting uh, two-sided market of economy, but hopefully it makes it part of your great 2020 resolution. So thanks a lot, everyone. See you next week. Bye-bye, everyone. Mm -hmm.